We played hide-and-seek when I was a kid, like most kids do. Mostly, I played with my brother and our neighborhood friends. We had our rules, and we often played outside, which meant there were lots of great places to hide. I remember one time at a church lock-in, we played hide-and-seek in our activities building. And I found a fantastic hiding spot. It was well-shadowed. I knew no one would ever find me, and I was right. They searched and searched but never found me. Then one of the kids who was on the looking team, they had a whole squad that was looking for those of us who were hiding. He ran around the corner and said, Ali Ali Oxen free. You can come out now. It's safe to stop hiding. <laughs> well, I knew that was a trick. We didn't play it that way. You had to actually find the hiders. There was no giving up and speaking some foreign language that would magically make it okay for someone to come out of their hiding spot. So I stayed put. Eventually, one of the sponsors came around and started yelling at us to all come out. The game was over. He was grouchy. It was the middle of the night. And that made me grouchy because they weren't doing it right. And that was how I first learned to be a grouchy church member <laughs> who complained when the church doesn't do it right. There's something about our covenant to be the family of God together in a specific place that seems to entitle us to gripe and whine about whatever we decide isn't right. I had a beloved church member in my former church who was apparently called by God to monitor my clothing choices and to comment on them with impunity and regularity, especially when he thought I was doing it wrong. Where's your tie, son? Did you just decide on your own it was casual Sunday or Wednesday or Saturday? We grumble. It's in our spiritual DNA as far back as the people wandering in the desert. We heard the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're dying of thirst. Well, we're not sure they're dying just yet. And based on the initial reaction that Moses gives them, it seems they're being a little melodramatic. Or maybe Moses is just tired of it all. And he can't force himself to act like he cares about their complaints anymore. Job hazard working with God's people. Our narrator writes, The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? That's the moment in the story when you would love to hear the people respond, Well, we're quarreling because that's how the narrator labeled it. But basically, we're just thirsty. And did you just equate us asking you for water with testing the Lord? Now, that seems strange and perhaps a little telling. There are some who say it's because Moses heard this not as an attack on his lousy directional sense and his wilderness survival skills, but as an attack on God's provision of the people. Apparently, Moses had some secret canteen from which he was drinking because he didn't stop to say, you know, now that you mention it, I'm thirsty too. Others say this was revealing of Moses' problem with pride. He forgot. He was God's messenger. And perhaps started thinking he was God. So a challenge to his leadership would be the same as the challenge of God. Now that's worth a pause. Especially for those of us who are called to lead in some way, shape, or form God's children. We must never 
confuse the authority of the office we hold with personal authority. You are not God. Moses, pastor, teacher, deacon, council chair, musician, mission leader, or even grouchy voting church member, you are not God. You are called by your church and by the Holy Spirit to seek the face of God, to listen to the wind of the Holy Spirit whipping through the tent flaps, to feel the current of God's story of redemption moving and undulating this way and that way. You are called to pray, to read, to study, to be quiet, and then humbly lead as you serve and teach and love and guide and conduct and go out and even vote. Not representing your own opinion, but rather expressing where you have discerned the will of God to be on this or that particular matter. The narrator of the story only gives us a moment to pause here and to see this very seductive shift that Moses may or may not be making as he responds to the complaint of his fellow traveling companions. And then we get back to thirst. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? The narrator wants to reiterate, they really were thirsty. Right there where they were, they were thirsty. And they were starting to feel their security and their ability to survive threatened by the lack of water. The refrain is familiar. It's the same one they use to cry out about their lack of food. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Back there we had all the water we wanted. Remember those good times? We drank the cool water of the Nile. It's funny how selective our memory tends to be when we're frustrated about our present circumstances. Somehow the crack of the slave driver's whip drifts into the background until it can no longer be heard. The aching of their muscles and the scars on their backs just fade away and they only remember drinking that cool water. Letting it run down their chins and their necks, feeling it streak past their shoulders and onto their chest. Ah, that was good water. High quality H2O. But now, well now our kids and our cattle are thirsty, not to mention our own parched throats. What are you going to do about this, Moses? This is not the way we do things. Why are we so miserable? And Moses misses the real question, like we as ministers can so easily do. But he turns to God in his frustration says, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now surely God gave a divine eye roll with that one. The people start off with, you know, I'm starting to get a little thirsty. And they go straight to, we're all going to die. We're panting out our last words as our precious children suffer unto the point of death. And the livestock, oh, Did we mention the livestock? We've got no food. We've got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. And Moses gets swept up in the hyperbole by turning to God with complaints that started with, we're thirsty, and he takes it straight to, they're going to kill me. 
These people whom you gave to me, who complain all the time about every little thing, they're going to stone me. Well, almost. I mean, maybe. It's hard to tell, but I'm pretty sure that I saw a kid over there playing with the rock while his dad was asking me where the water was. And God, you know that's how it starts. One minute a kid walks in, tossing a rock in his hand. The next thing you know, you're in a pit being stoned. Save me, Lord. Well, it seems strange. God didn't tell everyone to take a breath and count to ten. And perhaps God did, but no one bothered retelling that part of the story. I think because it happened, happened so often, it seemed like God's standard start to the speeches. Let's all take it down a notch or twelve. Moses, go. Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders with you. Lead. But not by striking out on your own. Lead by coming to the place where I'm standing and take in your hand that staff your tangible reminder of how I have always been with you remember the ways I've used it to free my children and provide for them hold it in your hand remember some of the ways that I've worked through you to bring about things you could not even imagine wonders and signs that happened literally at your fingertips pick that up and follow me. Go ahead of the people and come to where I'm standing. Then in the presence of the elders, strike the rock so that our people may drink. And the scripture says Moses did so in the sight of the elders. That's a short sentence for a long walk of faith. Moses listened. And he did what he heard God telling him to do. And the water began to flow. But this isn't a story about water, is it? You see, if we just focus on the water and the moaning of a thirsty crowd, then it's really not that big a deal. They were thirsty, to be sure. Moses hits a rock and knocks open a spring, and abracadabra, the people are quenched. But they'll be thirsty again tomorrow. They'll probably be thirsty again tonight. And until you understand the real question behind the presenting issue, you will be running around in the desert, striking rocks with your staff until it breaks along with your soul. This isn't a story about water. The narrator tells us the names given to this watering hole, the grumbling bar and the whiny glass. It's been a while since I've had Hebrew. Then tells us the real question of the Israelites. The one that drove their fears and had them ready to fight or leave. The real question is, is the Lord among us or not? I suspect they could have been thirsty for a long time. If they knew beyond their doubts and their thick tongues that God was with them. Our story is crowded with people who have endured unspeakable difficulties for the sake of the good news. People have been burned at the stake, eaten by lions, drowned in rivers, endured lonely prison cells, and so much more with great courage and strength because they knew God was with them. Is the Lord among us or not? 
Now, for some reason, that question isn't raised as often in times of plenty as it is in times of need. When we can pay the bills and give a little to the church, when there's enough to buy that thing and not worry about whether it's in the budget exactly, when we can eat out just because we want to and our kids are well and they're keeping up in school and on the play fields, we don't seem to ask as fervently if we ask at all, is the Lord among us or not? When the achievements are piling up and the accolades come promenading, when our retirement account grows and our credit card debt shrinks, when we can work in the yard and only feel that good soreness, when we're able to help out here and there, we don't seem to wonder, is the Lord among us or not? When our call is clear, And that dream job opens up and we fall in love and we find our tribe. We don't have to ask, is the Lord among us or not? We seem to know in seasons of plenty something we don't know in times of need. Or perhaps our pain just sharpens our priorities. It is a fundamental question of our faith. Is the Lord among us? Or not. When we can't pay all the bills. And we're spending a lot of energy trying to make these three line up behind the next payday while we give attention to those two. When we don't know if we're just in a season of darkness or if this is our new normal. When we can't tell if our children will grow out of it or heal from it. When we're sure that our loved one isn't coming back. But we're not sure how to live without them. When we start clinging to the hope that we'll be the exception to the percentages and survive this disease, when we're desperately thirsty and we can't see signs of living water around us at all, we ask, we beg, we cry out from the depths of our soul, is the Lord among us or not? There's a sharpness of faith that occurs when the niceties have been burned away through life's desperation. We get right to the heart of it. We ask the hard question because we no no longer have time or patience to waste on anything else. And if we're not asking and actively answering the question, is the Lord among us or not, with all that we say and do, my friends, we should pack it up and go do something else. This is all a phenomenal waste of time if we're not asking and answering the question of God's presence in our world and in our lives. We're all crying out in different ways. Ali, ali, oxen free. Stop hiding, God. It's safe to come out. We're all singing to God with a great big world. Say something. I'm giving up on you. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the question behind the questions. It is the cry behind the tears. And if in our work to live out the call to serve God's children, we stop seeking God's face and thirsting for God's guidance and direction, if we get so comfortable with who we are and what we've always done, assuming those things are communicating the good news of God's presence among us, and we don't think to ask anymore, we're already dead. 
We're dried up. We're hollow robes and stoles. We're an arid shadow of what could be a beacon of God's light in the world. Is the Lord among us or not? That's how we lead. That's how we serve. That's how we discern. That's how we walk this path together. We ask the question. We seek the answer with the desperation of dying people. We thirst for God's presence among us and within us like deer panting for water, like madmen crawling in the sand, like like Christians wanting to drink from the springs of living water because we know everything else is temporary and ultimately unsatisfying. My sisters and brothers, let us live the question with the desperation of people who understand its magnitude. And let us walk and drink And share in the glorious, yes, God is among us. Amen.